Hello, everyone. Last time we examined whether John the Baptist was the last Elijah and concluded that he was not. Another has to prepare the way of Christ and prepare him a people. <clears throat> we questioned whether that man was Herbert Armstrong. I made the connection between Moses and Elijah types and the two witnesses, of which it is now apparent Herbert Armstrong was not one. Today we will examine the life of Elijah in the Scriptures, for that holds the key to understanding the spirit and power of Elijah. What he did before, he must in some fashion do again. <clears throat> John the Baptist had a similar style, but did not fulfill Elijah's functions in anywhere near the same fashion as we shall see. The most dramatic fulfillment is yet ahead. Now in 1 Kings 16, we'll pick up the setting here, and I'm not going to turn to that particular part, but you might be turning to 1 Kings 17. But Israel had been divided into Judah and the northern ten tribes in the days of Jeroboam, and now the ten tribes were split again, not into sections of Judah and Israel, but the ten northern tribes were split when Zimri conspired and slew the king. Interesting that in this context <clears throat> there was a conspiracy and the king was slain, I referred once to Isaiah 121, where it says you had adulterers and this and that in the church, and now murderers. And it raises the question once again of the rumors that Herbert Armstrong was murdered, smothered to death, or perhaps agitated into a heart attack, as opposed to dying peacefully in his favorite chair, as reported by Tkachin and Company. Perhaps we'll never know in this life, but the parallels in the scripture are sort of interesting. But half of Israel followed Tibni and half Omri, and Omri followed the ways of Jeroboam. Asa was at this point king of Judah, and not so hot himself. So all in all, it was a very tempestuous time, and Ahab took over, and was the worst of all the kings before him. Uh, I'll read this in 1 Kings 16, verse 30. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, and above all, above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he, and implied also, took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, Canaanite, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. This was a bad dude indeed. So this is the setting. I want to read a short section here from, uh, from Unger's uh, dictionary as well about him. But one comment here about Jezebel first. Uh, he married Jezebel, a Baalite, and we pick her up again in Revelation 2 where she leads Thyatira astray. And if you will notice in the context, all the churches sees what happens to Thyatira. So they all exist now. They haven't disappeared in times past, or, or Thyatira wasn't in the middle of the Middle Ages. She's there now, and all the churches see what happens. So this makes yet another tie-in to Elijah and the present church and the end time. <clears throat> they worshipped Baal, both Jezebel and her husband King Ahab. Um, ironically, this year they have a huge advertised 
Christmas bash in the auditorium dedicated to the great God of Israel. And it is being used for Baal worship this very month. Now on to the <clears throat> quote from Ungers. The better to understand his history, speaking of Elijah, let us briefly consider the condition of affairs when Elijah made his appearance. Ahab had taken Jezebel, a Canaanite woman and daughter of Ethbaal, for his wife. Of a weak and yielding character, he allowed Jezebel to establish the Phoenician worship on a grand scale. Priests and prophets of Baal were appointed in crowds. Uh, the prophets of Jehovah were persecuted and slain or only escaped by being hid in caves. It seemed the last remnants of true religion were about to perish. Does that sound anything like the church today? Jezebel had also induced Ahab to issue orders for the violent death of all the prophets of Jehovah, who, since the expulsion of the Levites, had been the only firm support of the ancient religion. End of quote from Ungers. <clears throat> Not much is written about Elijah as a person. Um, he wore rough clothing and a sheepskin cloak, much as John the Baptist, and not much was said about John the Baptist either, other than eating locusts and wild hunting and uh, walking around in the wilderness a great deal. But Elijah also often sojourned in the wilderness and disappeared there often. That is where God sent him in times of danger and where he went on his own at other times. There he communed with God. He was an outdoors type and probably a stark contrast to the soft, well-dressed, polished priests of Baal. He was also a man of like passions as we are, as we see in James 5.17, and the healing passage there. Does this mean he would not strike us as a super-spiritual-appearing person? I'm speaking of the one yet to come. Maybe. It should encourage us that what we are about to examine in his life was done by the power of God through an ordinary man. If the pattern of the original Elijah and John the Baptist holds, we can expect a similar personality as a final fulfillment in the end-time prophet. Now let's go to chapter 17, because this is where Elijah, just without fanfare, suddenly appears on the scene. Not mentioned before this in the Bible. And blam, here he is. First of all, the word Elijah means, My God is Jehovah, or as some say, Yah, or Jehovah, is God. <clears throat> and Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahah, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So he confronts King Ahab and tells him there will be no rain on the earth. He wasn't afraid of the king, and notice that he appears on center stage before the king of Israel. This isn't something done in a corner, but went right to the king of Israel. <clears throat> and he said, these years, we know from James 5.17, that it was three years, six months, exactly three and one-half years, similar to the three-and-a-half-year period that the two witnesses of Revelation can proclaim no rain on the earth as they choose. So, blam, he does that. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying... Now here is a very strange thing, in a way. Um, uh, let's examine it. Get you hence, and turn, your, turn you eastward, and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, that is before Jordan. It was a, uh, a creek running into the river Jordan. 
But God recognized that what Elijah had said to Ahab would call for a death warrant on Elijah <clears throat> through Ahab and through Jezebel, certainly. So he told him to go hide. We don't see a lack of faith in Elijah here because God simply instructs him to go hide after he confronts Ahab. And it shall be, verse 4, that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the book Cherith, that is, before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Some commentaries try to say that ravens could be interpreted uh, uh, Arabians because they didn't really want to believe <coughs> that the ravens, the actual black birds, brought him his food. But there is no way really of showing that, and there was a miracle here. It was ravens who brought bread and flesh in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then God told him to leave there. Now it is very interesting that there is no apparent reason that this was done, and it's certainly not explained here. No one apparently witnessed this, so in that sense it was not a message to Israel or anyone else. So to whom is this message directed? Was it just for Elijah? Or was it written for us upon whom the ends of the world are come? Could it be Elijah was doing this specifically as a witness to us at the end of the age when another prophet will arise in the spirit and power of Elijah? Notice Psalm 78:19. I won't have you turn back there, but it says, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can God bring food? Can God bring water? That's a question that's asked there in Psalm 78. And in Isaiah 43, I will turn on back and read this. Isaiah 43. Um, let's see, what do I want here? Verse 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. <clears throat> now it shall spring forth, and you shall, and shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the deserts. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. And we are the chosen, as First Peter 2, 29, or 2 and verse 9 point out. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. So that's speaking of the church here at the end time. I had a couple of other uh, references here, and I guess I turned the page. Oh, chapter 41 and verse 18. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry springs or dry land springs of water. And then he talks about planting seven trees in the wilderness. Trees, in this instance, being a type of churches. Oh, remember, all seven women take hold of one man. Uh, God is going to provide a leader, and they will take hold. But God is going to provide in the wilderness for his people. He tells us in Revelation 12 that they will be taken to a place prepared for them, and many scriptures show its wilderness, deserts, and mountains. 49.10 <clears throat> They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that has mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water he shall guide them. So indeed, God is going to prepare a table in the wilderness for his people, just as he did for uh, Elijah. And the end-time Elijah is going to be very, very much a part of the church, as we will see. 
Now verses 9 through 24, it's in a sense a similar story, uh, different, but not explained either. Verse 9, Arise, get you to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. So he rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering of sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray you, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray you, a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. So there had been no rain, there was famine on the land, and this poor widow was about to eat her last meal and lay down and die along with her son. And Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but make me therefore a little cake first. You're about to die, but make me a cake first, and bring it to me, and after make for you and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, had a very serving attitude, and was willing to put him first when he asked it, and he was willing to explain that this oil and meal will not waste and will not fail. And she believed him. And she and he in her house did eat many days, or as my margin says, a full year. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, it's strange in the sense that there were many widows in Israel. There had been lots of wars. Drought and famine were on all the land. Many were starving to death. And this woman intended to eat her last food and die. So, God's object was not to feed people by Elijah as Joseph did. Elijah was a prophet against the sins of the nation, a witness against them and very involved, as we shall see. God intended people to die in the circumstance of starvation. But he made an exception, or she would have died as the others did. So there's no clue in either story that Elijah lacked faith. He just did as directed. The lesson is for others. The lesson is for us. A. God promises to feed and protect the faithful remnant of the church. Revelation 12, the verses we just read in Isaiah. And the church is essentially, in that sense, a widow. Her betrothed, Jesus Christ, has turned his face from her, as we've seen in several scriptures in Isaiah. Also, she wanders about in Song of Songs, the watchman working her over, beating her up pretty well. That's the unfaithful ministry of the church today, beating up on the church people. And we've seen through this series that God will select one woman, a virgin, called the virgin daughter of Zion, and save her children not all the children of the church's organizations. I'm getting a little ahead of the story here. Um, let's pick it up again in verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. He died. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O you man of God? Are you come to me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And we might look at the ministry today as, as members and say, Well, what have you come to do? You're destroying the church. You're abusing and misusing the sheep and doing what Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and Malachi 1, 2, and 3 say. And are you really men of God? And he said to her, Give me your son. 
And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Eternal heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. He was resurrected. You begin to get a little bit of an inkling of the spirit and power of Elijah here. Have we seen this yet in this age? And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. If she had doubted before, she didn't doubt anymore. So a type is borne out by Elijah here, saving the child of one woman, not all the widows of Israel. That wasn't the point. Remember Isaiah 4, where it says all seven women, or all seven widows in that sense, take hold of one man, asking for relief from their reproach. Let us be called by your name, they say. There's a great deal here that is going to be carried out in the prophecies for this end time. So people will question. They will reject Elijah at the end, the end time Elijah, just as this woman did the original Elijah, and also what occurred to John the Baptist, as we read in the last sermon. But Elijah came through, and so will the end time Elijah. He will raise up the children of the widow anyway, restoring them. Now, once this happens, the end-time Elijah will be recognized by the faithful as a true minister of God, perhaps not entirely before. In the words of Ezekiel 2.5, Then will they know that there has been a prophet among them. Now, let's go to chapter 18, because the story goes right back to the king. And it came to pass, after many days, that the word of the Eternal came to Elijah in the third year, so three and a half years actually total down the line, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So he tells him, Go right back to Ahab. Perhaps the last time he had seen Ahab, he said, There will be no rain. This time he's told to go to Ahab again and say, There will be rain. So this was not done in a corner. Elijah was on center stage of the whole nation of Israel. Consider all the nations of Israel today, and the fact that the end-time Elijah then will probably be, well, I say probably, uh, It is very clear, once you understand this story, that it will be a center stage thing with all Israel. And Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria, Samaria, the northern tribes, and Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house, uh, Ahab's servant. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, so here was a true man among all those Baal worshippers. For it was so, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go to the land, to all the fountains of water, and to all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So he was really suffering from the effects of this three and a half years of no rain. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout, and Ahab went one by, way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him. And he fell on his face and said, Are you that, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, I am. 
Go tell your lord, Ahab, Behold, Elijah is here. Obadiah didn't want to do this. And he said, What have I sinned, that you would deliver your servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they said, He is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found you not. They had to swear that they couldn't find it. He was public enemy number one. The end time Elijah is going to be public enemy number one. Was Herbert Armstrong public enemy number one? Or did, for the most part, he have a user-friendly message of give and get and uh, the kingdom of God will come and you can be part of it and um, the human potential of man and so on. But it was not, for the most part, except early in the 50s and 60s perhaps, a strong message of prophecy against the nation. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from you, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry you where I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he can't find you, he'll slay me. But I, your servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? God is going to hide his people again. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here, and he'll slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Don't worry, Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah uh, I'll stay here, and I will face the king. You may be afraid of him, but I'm going to face him, because that's what God has told me to do. So he put him at ease. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Where are my, my notes now? I get lost. Uh, one comment I wanted to make here about going back some was about uh, Jezebel. Uh, we're going to face another Jezebel who is going to order all true ministers and people of God killed. Matthew 24. We'll be, be even betraying one another perhaps. She's right in the mix in Revelation 2 in re- relationship to Thyatira. Alright, now, what happened when they confronted here? Uh, And it came to pass, verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Are you he that troubles Israel? Are you the one I've been looking for? Are you that Elijah who shut down the rain and has caused this curse on all of us? Notice Elijah's answer. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed Balaam. Is this the way you normally approach a king? Who's the problem here? (laughs) Elijah didn't cut him any slack at all, and he didn't backwater at all himself. He just was right out there with it. And I think you're going to see that the end-time Elijah has that type of personality as well. It's kind of the hair-on approach, like John the Baptist had. Now, therefore, he took charge here. Uh, he, he didn't ask a request of the king. He said, Now, therefore, send and gather to me all Israel. Again, this is not being done in a corner. It's important for us to understand this. Gather all Israel to Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal, 450, 
and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So there were 850 prophets of Baal and of Jezebel who were invited to the showdown that's about to occur. Now, 450 showed up, the prophets of Baal, but the um, prophets of Jezebel apparently did not. Jezebel did her own thing. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. I don't know how long this took, but word went out to all Israel, all over the land, we're to gather at Mount Carmel. This is sort of like gathering all of the Laodicean ministers plus the Protestants and Catholics today together. We're going to determine here who really is God and who is going to stand for God. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Didn't know what to say. Jeremiah 9.3 Who will be valiant for God? In other words, there is no double-mindedness allowed. Get on or get off. Get in or get out. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 We are going to face things in this world that we have never faced before. There is going to be a confrontation between the church and this world. And we had better make up our minds now not to have a spirit of fear, but the spirit of love and power and a sound mind. That's what the end-time Elijah is going to have to have to have this kind of personality, this kind of uh, strength and power to go up before the rulers and not backwater whatsoever and to tell the people, how long will you halt? What are you going to choose? Then said Elijah to the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. Jezebel had been killing everyone she could find. As far as he knew, he was the only one left. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So this, he is pointing out, is a 450 to 1 standoff. Those are pretty sad odds, normally speaking. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves. He gave them first choice. Cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under, and I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under and call you on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answers by fire. Let him be God. He gave them another advantage here, because the God of Baal was known as a fire god, and a sun god. So he was known as the God of fire. So he threw this challenge out. Let's see who answers by fire. And the people answered and said, It is well spoken. We'll take these odds, 450 to 1, and we'll see who produces fire. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock... Oh, we already read that. Uh, verse 26. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us, hear us. Can you imagine this? They've got this bullock on the wood, and 450 of them are running around in circles, screaming for Baal to hear them. And there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. They screamed and leaped and jumped up and down and made as much noise as they could. And it came to pass at noon, after watching this all morning, Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, you're not screaming loud enough, for he's a god. He's either talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure he sleeps and he's got to be wakened. (laughs) 
And they didn't see the sarcasm in this. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gashed out upon them. So they thought if they would draw blood, maybe that would cause Baal to hear them. So here they were, bleeding, screaming, la uh, shouting, crying aloud, doing all they could to get Baal to pay some attention. And it came to pass, when midday was past, and they prophesied till the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Dead silence. All this screaming and yelling and bleeding, letting of blood for all those hours, all day long, had produced absolutely nothing. And Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Remember in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, where it tells the two witnesses there to measure the altar? Uh, I think that there's a parallel here. He took care of the altar first. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So twelve represents the unity of the twelve tribes. And we find, if we go back, and uh, read in Isaiah 49.6 that this will happen in the wilderness. When God takes his people out, he's going to begin the restoration of the twelve tribes, and ultimately there will be 144,000 sealed of all the people that have ever lived who have been faithful to God. So that unity will return, even though we are now scattered, divided, and being spewed out of God's mouth. So this is going to happen again, and Elijah works out the symbology of it. Haggai 2.9 as well. In this place will I bring peace, unity, harmony. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of wood. So he, he had his altar. He did some things to it that the priests of Baal hadn't done. Made a big trench around it, and he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water. Water was scarce, but they could do it and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water, so he soaked this thing down. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their heart back again. So what does he do? He invokes the fathers. He's turning the hearts of these people back to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the faith of our fathers. This is echoed in Malachi 4.6. He also said that the people would turn their heart again to God in verse 37. Haven't we read many, many times through this series on the minor prophets that God's whole desire and purpose in this scattering that is being done on the church right now is to turn our hearts back again to God. That's what this is all about. We have been Laodicean, lackadaisical, lax. We've halted between two opinions. We've halted between the world and God. We've allowed the world to encroach upon our relationship with God. 
And what does God think of that? Well, notice verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Or Yahweh or Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. That's the whole point God is trying to get across to you and me. There is only one God, and we cannot afford to break the first commandment. And Elijah said to them, Take the prophets of Baal, and let not one of them escape out of the 450. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slew them there. I don't know whether he actually took a sword, had them all lined up, and heads rolled. He may have cut all their heads off or he may have assigned it and overseen it, uh, saying that he's the one who caused it to be done, or he may have done it himself personally. It doesn't really say. And Elijah said to Ahab, Get you up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Now what had this man done here? He had confronted all Israel. He had confronted all the pagan priests. He had caused the people to turn from Baal, to quit halting and say, The Lord is God, the Lord is God. And he had destroyed the entire ministry of Baal. Then God said, All right, we'll turn the spigot back on. So he turned to Ahab the king again and said, All right, now there's going to be an abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel there, I was just there in June, uh, slopes very sharply down into the sea there, the site of modern-day Haifa. And he was in sight of the sea, being up on Mount Carmel. And he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and get you down, that the rain stop you not. Go tell Ahab he'd better hurry, because it's going to rain cats and dogs here, and he will mire down and get stopped and not even get home if he's not careful. It came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So he stayed right ahead of Ahab's chariot. Must have been in some kind of physical condition to be able to do this. People then walked a great deal pretty much where they went and in this case he even ran. He didn't want to get caught in the rain either I suppose. So Elijah pointed back to the faith of the fathers as per Hebrews 11, which is full of it. Christ said, Will I find faith when I return to this earth? Will it be there? Well, we had better turn our hearts to find to have the same kind of faith that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob had, the same kind of faith that Elijah had, And he slew these prophets. See Revelation 11 again, about what happens to any who contest the two witnesses. There are so many parallels here. 
And then the abundance of rain came once the repentance was there. I don't know how long the repentance lasted, probably not very long, and Ahab didn't ever really repent, but the people did at least admit that God was God, and he had pointed them to the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now you'll notice in Joel 2, and I won't go back to read it, that the former and latter rains will come once we turn to God with our whole heart. And that's an end-time prophecy just before the day of the Lord. So what Elijah does in the end time is going to cause the blessings, the benefits, the gifts of God and his spirit to come back on the church, his faithful remnant, through Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, and again through Elijah and Moses, the two witnesses. These types come together right here at the end. Now let's go to chapter 19. Uh, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. There was no repentance in this woman at all. And there won't be in the coming Jezebel that the church faces. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he went clear down south of Jerusalem, about 40 miles to Beersheba, way far south. But he himself went a day's, he left his servant there, and he himself, by himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness, probably on south from Beersheba, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I've had enough excitement. <laughs> I faced Israel. I faced the king. And now i got to face Jezebel. I don't really want to do this. Um, he went in this case on his own. God didn't tell him to go down to Beersheba and to go into the wilderness, but he did. This is what God had told him to do in the past, and that's what he, by personality, apparently, was wont to do anyway. But God wasn't done with him. He may have been tired, he may have been frustrated, might have been a little bit discouraged, and maybe he feared her more than he had Ahab. At any rate, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Rise and eat. And he looked, I guess he had rested a while, and uh, he ate and was strengthened and refreshed. Then the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So you've still got work to do. And he rose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Same place Moses went. Interesting the parallels between what Elijah did and what Moses did. Moses also fasted forty days and forty nights. Twice, actually. And he came there into a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah really didn't know what he was doing. <clears throat> but God had something in mind, and he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and slain your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, am only, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He felt hopeless, he felt helpless. Even though God had done these tremendous miracles, and had faced down the whole nation before him and stopped the rain for three and a half years and started it when he prayed about it, uh, he still felt alone and left out, and Jezebel was after him, and he felt he was about to die. So perhaps he wavered here somewhat. He's human, and he was a man subject to passions such as we are. 
and probably the end time Elijah is going to be rejected as John the Baptist did or was and probably he too is going to begin to feel some of this rejection and aloneness having to do these things and go up against the world and against all Israel and ultimately as we're going to see against the whole world and he said go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord and behold the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks now there was some wind broke the rocks but the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire a still small voice so God showed three very dramatic happenings here and he wasn't in any of it perhaps he was showing that all you need is a still small voice as an indication of God's presence you don't have to have dramatic things all the time now you had drama there at Carmel with the prophets of Baal and then you went out here in the juniper by yourself and you were afraid but this man was strong fasting 40 days and 40 nights isn't something you or I would want to take on I don't think and yet still there were times that he felt vulnerable and helpless and hopeless to some degree but I think the whole point that God was giving Elijah here is that I'm with you you don't have to have this dramatic thing all the time just a still small voice to know I'm here so I'm here I'm with you get back to work verse 13 and it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering end of the cave and behold there came a voice to him and said what are you doing here and he repeated what he had said before verse 15 and the Lord said to him go get back to work uh, quit whining about this apparently return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus now he was clear down had been down at Beersheba and Damascus is way north and when you come anoint Hatziel to be king over Syria three things he tells him to do and Jehu the son of Nimshi shall you anoint to be king over Israel and Elisha the son of Shaphat of, uh, shall you anoint to be prophet in your room so he told him to anoint two kings and a prophet to replace himself ultimately and to be his companion for a few years as it turned out and it shall come to pass that he that escapes the sword of Hatzael shall Jehu slay and him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay now you were feeling all alone here Elijah you didn't think there was anyone but you and you were about to die yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel all the knees which have not bowed to Baal and every mouth which has not kissed him so then he went uh, and threw his mantle for Elisha and Elisha who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen stopped and he slew a yoke of oxen and boiled their flesh with the instruments the, the plowing harness and gave it to people to eat in other words he got rid of his tools he was not going to look back he was going to follow Elijah as his student as his learner as his companion and he was not going to leave himself a place to go back to uh, it would be tantamount to Peter James and John and those men as fishermen uh, selling their boats when they went to follow Christ now after this uh, Elijah pretty much disappears from the scene and Elijah or, or Elisha takes over the only things that are mentioned after this in this particular context are that uh, 
Elijah had said Jezebel would die and be eaten of dogs and this is mentioned again in 936 because uh, Elijah had sort of disappeared and Elisha was uh, was at work and he was kind of in and out apparently but not much is said of him for a while uh, he had also predicted that the uh, whole house of, Abraham, uh, of Ahab would be destroyed and this is recounted in uh, wait a minute where am I here I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We want to go to 2 Kings 1. Um, I looked ahead in my notes and skipped a section here. Because that was all that was about all that was said of, uh, of uh, Elijah through the rest of the first book of Kings. And then we see him again here in the second book of Kings. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Rise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, but shall surely die. And Elijah departed. James mentions Elijah in terms of healing and having the kind of faith to be healed, the kind of faith required to have it not rain for three and a half years. And healing becomes a very important part of Elijah's life. Remember, he healed, he resurrected the son of the widow. And here he is told to tell the king of Samaria, the northern tribes, that he will die because he went to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, it would appear that healing is going to be a very, very important part of the end-time Elijah's message to have the kind of faith of our fathers where we are willing to trust in God who tells us very clearly, I am God, your healer, Psalm 103. But today, many times ministers will anoint people and then send them to the doctors showing that they have a lack of faith and they'll go to whatever healing person might be around. Maybe we can't call the doctors of today the gods of Ekron, or maybe they're not direct Baal worshippers. But is there a God in Israel? Should we go to another source? Or do we go to God whose name is our healer? Is there something missing today? Will Christ find faith on this earth? Well, he said, because of this, you're going to die. Remember King Asa? He died because he sought the physicians instead of God when he was diseased in his feet. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do we throw um, sand in God's face when we look to someone other than him for healing? Something to think about. And remember, Elijah to come is going to come in the same spirit, the same attitude, the same mindset, and the same power as Elijah. And when the messengers turned back to him, he said to them, Why are you now turned back? And they said to him, There came up a man to meet us and said, Go turn again to the king that sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is not because there is not a God in Israel that you send, or is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you send to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? It's repeated. Therefore you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, 
but you shall surely die because you sought the God of Ekron rather than the God of Israel. And he said to them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? The king wanted to know, Who told you this? And they answered him, He was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, Ah, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Very much like John the Baptist, a wilderness type, dressed in perhaps rougher clothes of leather, uh, not your polished uh, court lackey. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and I won't read all of this, but um, the king sent fifty men with a captain of fifty to um, tell him to come see the king. (laughs) And Elijah called fire from heaven and devoured them. And it happened again. He sent another captain of fifty, and fire came down and consumed them. Now word got around that this was happening. Verse 13, he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. The third captain was a little more careful. He came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray you, let my life and the life of these fifty your servants be precious in your sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore let my life now be precious in your sight. This third guy was more attentive. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him to the king. Now, God was going to have Elijah go anyway. But he wanted to make a point here. Who's in charge? Who has the backing and the power of God? And 50 men died as a result, I mean 100 men died as a result of this. God making a point. So he went down to the king and he said to him, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, for as much as you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Face to face this time. Therefore you shall not come down off that bed on which you are gone up, but shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. Here's a direct confrontation between the king and Elijah, and he was never even treated of Ekron. He just inquired whether he would live or die. And he died. Now in chapter 2, it came to pass, when the Lord would have taken Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind. Interesting here. It's apparently that God at times took Elijah places on the earth. Uh, This ties in pretty closely with uh, uh, Ezekiel 1 and 3 in chapter, what is it, 9, 10, somewhere in there where it describes the chariot of of Jesus Christ, where he rides through uh, the universe and has the wheels and and so on and so forth. You can go back and read that. I don't want to take the time to do it at this point. But uh, we'll see a little later on that it wasn't a whirlwind, but a chariot that picked him up. Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And it was time at this point for... Elijah to go away and Elisha to take over much as perhaps the signs and wonders done by the men around Joshua in Joshua 3 um, will continue while Joshua goes on to do something else perhaps the message to the world at that point but the miracles will continue just as they did with Elisha here but it was time for Elijah to leave and leave Elisha in charge there but Elisha didn't want him to go so he followed him to Bethel and he said I won't leave you And then they went down to Jericho, and he said, I won't leave you here. 
And then they went down to the Jordan, verse 6, and he said, I'm not going to leave you here. And they went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view far off, and they too stood by Jordan, verse 7. Now, verse 8, Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together, his sheepskin coat that he wore, just like Moses at the Red Sea and Joshua Jordan. These are all tied together. Joshua, Elijah, Moses. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and, and here and there, so that they too went over on dry ground. So just as Joshua parted the waters when Israel came into Israel, uh, so did Elijah do it here. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I be taken away from you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so to you. But if not, it shall not be so. In other words, it's up to God, and here's the sign whereby you will know. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared, appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into the heavens. Whirlwind is in the first heaven. He didn't go up to God's throne or into the heavens as the Protestants think at this point. But it ties together, as I started to say, about Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10, where uh, uh, the chariot of Christ, the chariot of fire, uh, comes before Ezekiel. And it makes me wonder if the two witnesses, pictured by Ezekiel there and perhaps by Elijah here, will not be transported to various parts of the earth in that chariot of fire that uh, Christ has so that they can preach in one place today, one place tomorrow, maybe come home and spend time with their families in a place of safety at night. I don't know. But it's mentioned in Ezekiel, a prophecy for the end, and it's mentioned here in the story of Elijah, who will be the type of the man at the end, one of the men who are doing these marvelous works that God is going to cause to come upon the world through the church. So that's a possibility. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel. So he knew by this he would receive double the spirit of Elijah, and, and he went on and did incredible miracles. And the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces uh, out of sorrow that he wouldn't see Elijah anymore. He took also up, up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by Jordan, and he then parted Jordan and then began to do all kinds of miracles. So, this is the point I was trying to get at a while ago when I skipped ahead, where Elijah disappears, and he's mentioned in chapter 9 and chapter 10, uh, where the death of Jezebel, as he had predicted, occurred, and she was eaten of the dogs, and then in 10, the whole house of, Abraham, uh, of Ahab <laughs> was killed, as he had predicted. And we don't see any more of Elijah then, except 2 Chronicles 21.12. I want to turn back and uh, look at that. 2 Chronicles 21 and verse 12. And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet. Thus says the Lord God of David your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but of sinned and so on. He would strike a king, uh, what was his name here? Jehoram, I think it was. Yes, Jehoram, with a great plague and that he would die. And he then had a plague come upon him and was sick in his bowels and died two years later of sore diseases and so on and so forth. So Elijah was still alive. He had been transported somewhere else on the earth by the chariot of fire and wrote a letter back 
from another place proclaiming a plague and it happened now let's go back to Malachi uh, 4 we've gone through the history of the actual life of the prophet Elijah and seen the things that he did now if we go back to Malachi 4 <clears throat> let's review again what he says here behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord so here's someone appearing right at the end and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children of their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse now before addressing Moses and Elijah or Moses work and Elijah here as an individual God delivers a withering condemnation of today's ministry as we saw two sermons back when we went through the book of Malachi. So starting with the altar, with the ministry, here we again refer to Revelation 11, 1 through 2, the ministry must be retrained or replaced. The altar must be measured and it will either be found uh, wanting or not. And according to Malachi 1 through, well, the whole book of Malachi and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel 34, uh, it is found wanting. According to tradition, it's not in the scriptures, but according to tradition, Elijah had a school of priests to counter the school of Baal. And the school of Baal had its heads rolled. And ministers today are going to have their heads rolled. Maybe not their physical heads right away, but at least their jobs. And we see that in Zechariah 11, Isaiah 5, <clears throat> here in Malachi and other places. Now, how will Elijah turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers? Now, three levels of this seem apparent to me. Uh, let's, let's look at those. Number one, our hearts as Christians to our Father in heaven and his to us. Right now he has his head turned from us and is scattering us. He can't bear to look on our sins and our Laodiceanism because our heads have been turned too much to the world and not enough to him. And we thought we're okay, a-okay, um, doing fine, thank you. We're Philadelphians. So, first of all, our hearts have to be turned to our Father in heaven. And that's what Elijah did back there, isn't it? With the people. Next, our hearts have to be turned to our fathers, plural. The kind of faith that our fathers had. Hebrews 11 is a chapter about the, our fathers, the faithful ones. Elijah is in, himself included there. If you read Hebrews 11.35, it talks about women receiving their dead restored to life, and the only two references in the Old Testament to that are the two resurrections that Elijah and Elisha did. So our hearts have to be turned back to where we have the kind of faith that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Noah and on and on it goes in chapter 11 of Hebrews had we have to come to have that kind of faith brethren a primary aspect of Elijah's ministry was faith in God and healing even resurrection and denouncing going to anyone but God for the answers in our lives will Christ find faith on the earth are we his whether we live or die as Paul attested of himself or are we double-minded and doing all we can to cleave to this life? If so, what about facing martyrdom later on? Will we have to if we do not trust God in our lives now? Will we have to be tested further? Somebody has to come 
and show us the kind of faith that we have to have. Elijah has to turn us to that. Now the third area would be the physical fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And in some ways it might be the hardest task. Look at our children today. Are they strong for God, most of them? How many have just gone back into the world? And how many who are still with us are leaning into the world? Herbert Armstrong did not turn the children to their fathers and the fathers to the children in great respect and awe. Our children are somewhat rebellious today and they're departing from the ways of God. Now, there are some few who are not, but most are. That's the trend. Herbert Armstrong did not accomplish this and he was not the end-time Elijah. He worked mainly on the first level that we talked about. Uh, that is, turning Christian hearts to God. Somewhat on the second, turning us to the kind of faith that Abraham and Isaac had. And a little bit on the third. The physical fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. But the families never did come back together. Marriage problems to the end of Worldwide Church of God were the biggest problem in the church. Probably still are. And with marriage problem comes children problems as well. In other words, family problems. Those problems have not been solved in the church. YOU may have done more damage than good. It turned to competition. It pulled the kids away from their parents, to their coaches, to each other. Herbert Armstrong might have been a mild type of Elijah because he did do some restoring and he did do some turning to God, of, his, of God's people. But God's people were not prepared. And when Herbert Armstrong died, just before he died, he said, get the people ready. They're not ready. A people was not prepared, and he knew it. Now, how was Elijah a type of this? What did he do? He removed the false heroes, the idols, from the children of Israel, and they then proclaimed the true God. He repaired the altar first, symbolizing going back to the beliefs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers. The same thing that Jude, Peter, and Paul instructed the New Testament church and us today to do. He put up the twelve stones, showing unity in Israel for a change. The altar was in disrepair and divided, just as the church is divided and scattered and being further divided today. Elijah has to reverse this trend. There has to be a rejoining of the twelve tribes in the wilderness. Zechariah 11 shows the unity of the brotherhood is broken and it has to be restored. Christ indicated John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. Not much is said of John, but what did he do? He paved the way for the straying children of Israel to recognize the Father through Christ, to open up the way for he who would proclaim the Father, Jesus Christ. Today, we preach loud and long for the adults to come out of Babylon, give up our idols of materialism and entertainment which take our time from the true God. It's hard enough for us, but what about the kids aged 3 to 18? Dad and mom are harried and busy making a living, keeping up the house. The church idols must be removed from the fathers and the children. And it's a big job. Let's look at it. Dad is not the hero anymore. Who are the heroes, the idols of the kids? Movie and television stars, basketball and football stars, race car drivers, rockers and rappers. <coughs> those people, those things which take the time, interest, and adoration of the children, even drugs, tobacco, alcohol, 
fast cars and fast women. Dad doesn't have a chance against the electronic media. Mom either. That which they do is despised and taken for granted. A roof, food, transportation, convenience. You can do these things for us, but essentially stay out of our heads and our habits. We'll live our life. You take care of us. Now, I see only two possible ways to remedy this. You can either remove the children from the idols, and this can't seem to be accomplished in the middle of Babylon. There's no visible way to cause the children to not be impressed by what they see in front of them. Adults might resist. Children will not, and with few exceptions, are not resisting. This might be accomplished by taking them totally away from those idols, as God did when he took Israel totally away from the idols of Egypt. But this was not easy, even though they were physically removed. Those idols lingered in the minds and the imaginations, the memories, if you will, of those people. They cropped up every time any kind of hardship or trouble appeared. Moses smashed them at Sinai, and for that matter, constantly. But they died hard. Can you imagine if God took his people physically away from the glitter of this world's idols into a place of safety? The withdrawal symptoms would be incredible, especially with the kids. Many would resent being taken away from their world. No movies on Saturday night or any other time. No TV. They would have to be placed in a situation where Dad is again the hero. They might have to depend on him for food, shelter, and education in a situation where there is nothing else to look to. So you might take the kids away from the idols and the parents away from the idols. And that's partly a, the solution because the church is going to be taken away to a place of safety, a place prepared for her away from the world. Now the other thing you could do is take the idols from the children as Moses did by destroying Egypt and destroying Egypt by its gods. They worshipped the frogs. They worshipped the lice. They worshipped the things of the Nile. They worshipped Mother Earth, as people do today. So he pronounced plagues on them. Well, what did Elijah do? He pronounced plagues back there that we read on King Jehoram. Elijah killed the wishy-washy ministry, halting between two opinions. He didn't allow them to live. Elijah flat called them out. Played a challenge. 450 to 1, boys. Here we go. He was one tough cookie. He destroyed their whole reputation in front of the people and then killed them all. Maybe by his own hand, even. That has to be done again. The idols have to be destroyed. This is not going to be done in a corner. It's going to be done on the world scene. And the end time, Elijah is going to confront the priests of this world this ba these Baalites, these modern ones of today, it will be repeated. Moses and Elijah will come and confront the church first. They deal first with the church and rebuild it, but they have to give a warning to it as well. And then they're going to turn to the world. They will perform such miracles that they will discredit this world's idols. They will be hated of all peoples. They will declare the true God. They'll first do the job of Zerubbabel and Joshua with the church, and then they'll do the job of Moses and Elijah with the world to destroy the idols of Egypt and Israel. Remember what he said in Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel, or the, the mountains will become flat ground before Zerubbabel, 
Remember Micah 4 where it says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, when the Assyrian comes into your land? The end time leaders are going to face this world on its own terms. And they're going to call them out, just like Elijah did. Herbert Armstrong didn't do this, brethren. This has to be done on an international basis, and you have to understand this if you understand the power, or the spirit, and the power of Elijah. In other words, God is going to be behind this, and he's going to use these men to do these miracles. Let's go back for a moment and read it in the book of Revelation. Revelation 11. You're going to see the same things that you saw in the lives of Moses and in the life of Elijah. I can get back to Revelation 11 here. Revelation 11. Remember the first few verses deal with the church first. He tells them to leave out the court of the Gentiles, but they'll tread down the city 42 months. Verse 3. And I will give, her, give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand or twelve hundred and sixty days in sackcloth. Maybe they will or will not wear actual sackcloth, but sackcloth is symbolic of humility. So they're not going to do it with great pride, but it's going to be done with humility, and they're going to hate to have to do this to the people of this world. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have a three and a half year prophecy, same length as Elijah's, and they can shut the rain off and have power over waters to turn them to blood, just like in Egypt under Moses, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Both Moses and Elijah declared plagues. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which spiritually today is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified, that is, the physical city of Jerusalem. And the whole world is going to rejoice on them because they're going to lay there for three and a half days and they won't even allow them to be buried. They want to party and, and uh, jeer at them. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And then after three and a half days they rise to meet Christ in the air. But those two men are going to torment this world, a thorn in the side. They're going to destroy these gods of this world. They're going to destroy these people that we worship and idolize. When he says in Malachi 4, I mean, excuse me, in Micah 4, and in Isaiah 41, to rise and thresh, that means exactly what it says. These men are going to thresh like you would thresh grain and shake it off. Now, they're going to die once this is all done, but our kids are going to get big eyes over this, and so will the parents, because they're going to see that God is God. The Father, or, or the fathers of the church, and this isn't limited to just the two, because it says there in Micah, I think it's five, that uh, other men will come out to meet the Assyrians. So God is going to show signs and wonders through many people. And that ties in with Joel 2 and Acts 2, where it talks about young men and young women and the old men and so on, dreaming dreams and doing miracles. It's not going to be just two men. They're going to be the leaders, yes. 
But God is going to set his church in a wilderness, in a desert, on a hill, and the whole world is going to know where they are and what they're doing, and I'm fairly sure that, although this is speculation, the two witnesses will probably spend their nights there and go out on a chariot of fire by day and torment this world. The world will have no answer. And if they try to kill them or hurt them, fire will come out of their mouths and destroy their enemies. You think this won't get our kids' attentions? These powerful, cataclysmic events will make Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, 007, and other so-called action heroes pale into insignificance. Those idols and heroes will be removed. So the church is going to be removed from this society and its idols, and then the idols are going to be removed and destroyed in the eyes of the children. Then they will look to their fathers. Suddenly they're going to begin to have a respect for the church. They're going to begin to have a respect for God. Their parents won't look like hypocrites anymore. YOU programs, brethren, are not going to do this. And they didn't do it. These relationships have not been restored the way they must be restored so that our hearts are entirely with our God and we have the kind of faith our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did and where we look upon our children because they are respectful and loving and they look to their parents as their heroes for a change. Why do the kids wear, boys wear earrings in their ears? To identify with their peers in the world, not with their fathers. That respect is not there. This is going to require a lot more than we saw under Herbert W. Armstrong. What he did was not wrong, but to restore all things, incredible measures must be taken beyond what we've not yet seen. Incredible, for it is beyond our comprehension. Credible, because God says he will do it, and his word cannot be broken. That is why this deliverance from sin, this slavery to Egypt and Babylon, will pale into insignificance what was done in Egypt and at the Red Sea. This is global and powerful. Nothing has ever approached it. The whole world is going to be in torment because of God's people. Still small voice. It won't be a great, huge number of people. It'll be more like the 450 to 1. In fact, the odds will probably be even greater against the church. But they will have the power of God. Oh, yeah. False prophets going to call fire from heaven and do lying signs and wonders. But just like with Moses, the magicians made snakes too. But Moses' snakes ate their snakes. And the same thing is about to happen. Now, no wonder God places such a challenge in Malachi 4.6 and says, you do this, don't back off or I will come and smite the earth with the curse. Zerubbabel and Joshua will rebuild the temple as the two witnesses. It's very clear in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11 that they are one and the same as the two witnesses. And Moses and Elijah, a Moses and Elijah type, will also be used by those two men who will, repair, will restore proper relationships from the father and son to their children and to the church in all these three categories that I talked about. Can we, brethren, begin to see that Elijah will utterly destroy the gods of this world 
the gods of Israel that they have today just like he did before. That's what it means by coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He faced them down, made fools of them, and then killed them. The people finally admitted Jehovah is God. He got the attention of the adults and the children alike. Their gods were destroyed before their very eyes. This has to happen again. That's why God didn't use Enoch and Noah or Abraham and Isaac as types at the end. He used Moses because under God he destroyed Egypt. He used Elijah because by the Spirit of God and power he destroyed the priests of Baal. He prophesied the destruction of Jezebel and occurred just as he said. The two witnesses will take center stage and be thorns in the flesh and torment this earth. Herbert Armstrong did not come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He did not do what Elijah did. He didn't do what Malachi 4, 6 says to do except in a, mi in a minor way and not with the kind of power that Elijah exhibited. John the Baptist didn't exhibit this quite this kind of power either. But the end time Elijah will. The end time is more dramatic in every way than anything before it, culminating in the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the putting down of all Satan's and man's societies. There will be healings. There might even be a resurrection or two. These things will be done. Our gods and our children's gods will be taken away and destroyed before our very eyes. The world will not be nearly so impressive as it has been. Our hearts will finish turning to God, and our children will turn to God and to us. We will turn to our Father in heaven, and he to us. We will learn to have the faith of our fathers, as instructed in Hebrews 11. Our children will be humbled and impressed, turning to us. We will be impressed, impressive to them and not hypocritical, for we will live our faith. We will turn to them in love and respect as well seeing their improved attitudes and zeal for the real God, not the gods of this world. They will see all this and say, Jehovah is God. This is the spirit and power of Elijah. A people will be prepared for the Lord. He will not have to come and smite the earth with a final curse.